Welcome back. Our guest this week is Democratic Representative David Legrand working on more transparency in state government. Our lead stories, the COVID numbers start to move down, but still not good. On the OTR panel, Jonathan Osteen, Emily Lawler, and Rick Albin. Sit in with us as we get the inside out off the record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. And now, this edition of Off the Record with Tim Skubik. Thank you very much. Welcome back to our Zoom edition of Off the Record and on our panel this morning, Jonathan Osteen, Rick Albin, and Emily Lawler. Good to see all three of you healthy and with your shots and your arms and all that good stuff. Uh, Jonathan, let's start out with you. We're rejoicing in Michigan because our COVID numbers are down, but they're still rotten, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, we are seeing some positive signs that perhaps uh, this surge has peaked and is starting to decline. Case counts, um, you know, uh, yesterday, I believe it was about 5,000, which was down from more than 6,000 a week ago. Um, hospitalizations also are still very high, but appear to have trickled off a bit in the last couple days. And of course, that's a lagging indicator. Um, so I think it's too soon to say whether, you know, we're, we're definitely, um, you know, heading towards blue skies here, but um, certainly um, something to be optimistic about. Are you rejoicing yet, Emily? Um, not quite yet. It's funny how relative um, all of these numbers end up being, right? So, you know, for instance, our our fall peak. I remember thinking, um, oh my gosh, we're on this uh, this surge upward. Are we going to uh, reach where we were last spring? And of course, the answer was we far surpassed that, partially in, uh, due to the availability of testing. Um, and then, you know, we get to this spring surge and sort of same thing. It's it's a little bit relative in terms of uh, how much we can outdo um, our numbers from last time, which, of course, nobody wants to see. But I do think, like Jonathan said, there is reason to believe that, um, you know, we may be rounding a bit of a bend here. Um, and we'll see where that leads. And Mr. Albin. Well, I, I think it's interesting from my perspective that we have had so many people vaccinated already in the state. Um that there still is hesitancy out there. We know that's going to be a problem to get to that 70%. Huge. But it, it, it stands to reason that as more people are vaccinated, that less people, if everything about the vaccine that we've been told is true, and I assume that it is, then those numbers should start uh, to drop off a little bit. But the problem is, is what if you don't get to 70%? What if you only get to 50%? Then do we still have this possibility for those surges as we move on into the year and what happens to the ability to more fully reopen uh, to get back to 100%. Are we gonna be wearing masks this time next year? How much social distancing will we continue to have to do even with vaccinations? And when will we all be able to sit around the OTR table uh, and talk to each other uh, once again, rather than in our separate cubicles. Did we used to do that? Did we all sit yeah, around? Did. And I, did anybody remember I think I was that? on the last show before you kicked us all out. <laughs> I don't think that was my my choice, believe me. <laughs> all right, let's uh, turn the page. Uh, Jonathan, how serious is the governor's Florida problem? Um, well, right now, I think it's more an issue of transparency, which is something that has... Um, 
you know, tripped the governor up a couple times recently with the um, severance packages as well that were secret. Um, you know, it would be pretty easy, I think, for the governor's office to say when she traveled, where she traveled to, uh, but they've refused to do so. I mean, we suspect uh, it was Florida because she did say she visited her father who was ill um, and he uh, has a place in Florida. So we suspect it was that. They've said it was more than a month ago, but won't give a specific date. Um, but it opens up a lot of questions. You know, when was the governor out of the state and when therefore was she not the acting governor, for instance? Um, how did she travel? What planes did she travel on? Um, so, you know, I don't know if there's uh, fire uh, beyond that smoke, but um, certainly, um, you know, the governor's office refusal to be transparent is uh, leaving uh, a lot of questions lingering out there. Rick, it's pretty clear that the Republicans are trying to give this story legs and they put try to put two legs on it this week. Did they make it or not? Well, I, I really don't know. First of all, <clears throat> let, let's have a, a, a little bit of humanity here. Uh, I, I certainly understand why the governor would want to visit her father, particularly uh, if he is not in good health. I don't know what his health condition is and wouldn't presume to know, <clears throat> pardon me. But with that said, uh, I and my family have experienced the death of a loved one in a nursing home uh, where family uh, couldn't go visit and couldn't see. And I know what the pain and the angst uh, of that is. And so what we're really talking about is optics. Uh, is this uh, a good look for people here in the state of Michigan to be kept away from their loved ones. Uh, and the governor has the opportunity to go see her father. Uh, again, I take, you know, nothing uh, away from that because we, we all would like to, but I, but, I, but I would go with Jonathan on this. If you're gonna do this and it's already happened, then let's either do a talk till you drop uh, news conference or at least full disclosure about where, when, how, and all of those things. So you can say, look, there's, there's, no, there's no there there. This is what happened. This is how it happened and, and kind of put it to rest. Because now we have seen in a, a couple of cases uh, from the governor uh, talking about Robert Gordon. At one point she said, she's not gonna have any more to say about that. Governor's office said they won't have any more to say about this. Um, and from a reporter standpoint, once you say, I don't have any more to say about this, <laughs> I started having more questions about it. It, it leaves a vacuum, as we say. Uh, the yeah. interesting thing about this story, the executive office has not said what the needs were of her father, who is 80 years old. He does have a chronic illness, but nobody has said he was on his deathbed. Nobody said that he was under any extreme uh, health concerns. That it remains an unanswered question. And the Republicans, in, in taking on the governor, Emily, have been very careful to say this is not about visiting the dad in Florida. This is about the hypocrisy of telling us the state don't travel and then the governor travels. And the governor herself in a Washington Post event this week um, said that her father is a deeply private person, that <laughs> she was, uh, you know, regretting that she had to talk about it as much as she had already. Um, and we don't know a lot of details about his medical condition or anything like that, certainly. But I do think that, you know, Tim, when you said uh, they tried to, the Republicans were trying to give this story two legs, I think they're the two legs that Jonathan and Rick just talked about. Um, Jonathan talked about the transparency issue. Um, that they've brought up and Rick talked talk to, to sort of this uh, hypocrisy issue. And I think that the Republicans are trying their hardest uh, to make that stick. But, you know, I think that 
also, it sort of falls in this pattern. Um, certainly, it's different than um, some top Whitmer staffers who have uh, gone on vacations recently, not um, trips for, for medical uh, to visit ill family members by any means. But I do think that, um, you know, Republicans are sort of trying to point to this pattern of um, Whitmer saying one thing or requiring one thing and, and maybe having her top officials or her circle do another thing. Um, I don't know that that's been, uh, that that's going to be terribly easy, uh, especially because, you know, going forward, I would be surprised if we hear about too many of these trips or if trips are even an issue um, a few months from now, especially with, I think, the CDC approving uh, travel for vaccinated, fully vaccinated individuals, if I'm not mistaken. So. If we could roll the tape back a month or so and you were sitting around the governor's office saying, OK, we're going to make this trip to Florida, would it have been a good idea to say, let's announce that we're doing this? The best defense is an absolute positive offense. Now, would she have taken a hit for it? Absolutely. Would the hit been as deep as it might have been, Mr. Albin, if you were around that table? What would you say? Now, you once you have answered all the questions, once uh, Emily and Jonathan don't have any more questions to ask you, then you can manage whatever that, that hit is. If you continue to leave unanswered questions, uh, and, and, and I appreciate the fact that uh, they may believe these are questions that don't need to be answered, um, but that doesn't keep people like us from asking those questions. And and I, I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, Tim, I, I should point out uh, when Robert Gordon uh, answers that subpoena over in the Oversight Committee, we're going to see a lot more questions. And it'll be interesting to see if we get more answers about that. I think all of this has to do with transparency and, again, optics. You know, um, if you come out up front and say, this is what happened, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to go visit my father, I'm going to be gone for four days or two days or whatever, you know, it is, um, I, I think I think it's much more manageable. Yeah. All right. Let's turn the page. We've got a, a nice little fight going on over whether this stuff, these 39 bills are election reform or suppression, Jonathan. And uh, Jocelyn Benson is clearly on a mission, uh, having staged her second major news conference in two weeks. Uh, what was your takeaway from that? What what's she really worried about? Well, I, I mean, I do think she is worried about um, you know, Republicans putting a spin on this now that they're going through committee. Um, they are taking up some of the lower hanging fruit, you could say, um, immediately, and maybe sort of inoculating the public to these bills a little bit. Uh, some of the meatier and more controversial bills um, would make voting harder um, in a number of instances and um, uh, would potentially hurt Democrats in the 2022 election, um, you know, who, who benefited or at least won in 2020 when there was a very large turnout. Um, so, you know, she uh, is trying to get out ahead of this thing. Um, she's trying to keep the attention um, onto um, some of those more controversial bills as opposed to the, um, you know, sort of uh, feel-good bills that might pass initially. And, um, you know, sort of making the case potentially for voters who might uh, see these things before them in a petition drive if the governor vetoes them. Bingo, bingo, bingo. That's exactly what this is about, all about. The governor has said, Emily, I'm going to veto this stuff. So what are we worried about? She didn't say that she's trying to inoculate the electorate, but it certainly sounded to me like she was. At one point, she said, if people are going to sign a petition, I want to know, they want to know what's in this stuff, right? 
Yeah, there's been sort of a long-standing concern that, you know, by gathering signatures from, I think, what equates to like 4% of the population yeah. or um, a low number of the population essentially can override um, or replace a governor's signature um, in the process. So I do think that um, Democrats are looking at this and saying, well, Republicans could take us out of the equation completely um, if they were to pursue that route. Ricky? Well, I, I think there are a couple of problems, and, and that is that as you go into these things, and I think they've set these hearings up, so you start with the less controversial bills, as Jonathan was talking about, moving towards the others, maybe with no real intention to ever bring some of those more controversial things to a, a vote, but instead go to that initiative petition. But the the idea is that if you're going to go to an initiative petition, you can't put the language of 39 bills into an initiative petition. You'll never get on the ballot. So they're going to have to decide what it is that they want to do. And then how quickly can you get that done? And then if the legislature acts on it affirmatively, how long does it take to make its way through the courts? Because it's going to have to make its way through the courts. So uh, I, I don't know if any of this is really gets done in any manner. Um, for the 2022 elections. It, just, it seems to me that it's it's kind of big and cumbersome. And here we are, it's it's already April. I I, I don't know, it, it seems like it's kind of a long shot. Well, let's let's put the, put a, a ribbon on this thing. This was all generated by the alleged uh, irregularities of the election in Michigan, which the secretary of state said was just not it was a phony story. Uh, but this was a play to the base. OK, if you're a if you're a Trump Republican, you're putting this stuff out there to keep the people at home, maybe knowing in the back of your head that none of this or not a lot of this stuff is going to fly. But you get you know, you get a press release, you get the, everybody attention and they certainly got Jocelyn Benson's attention. Now, let's get the attention of David Legrand. David, are you there, my friend, over there on West Michigan? Good morning. Yeah, hi, I'm here. I just got told to tilt my screen. We're in a new world here, right? Um, instead of being in the studio, like you said, I've got to figure out how to get the glare off my nose. So, uh, yeah, so. You do look like a screen tilter to me. Uh, let's, let's talk about transparency in government. Uh, it appears, it appears that the Senate Republican leader is a bit of an obstacle to some of your legislation. Do you have a strategy that you can share with us today to go around Mr. Shirky, or are you just going to let him kill this stuff? Well, actually, there's a, unfortunately, there's been a development in this. And so um, I think maybe this is the most, uh, this may be the biggest thing uh, that we're going to be talking about this cycle if we care about um, democracy and transparency, um, which, you know, which are themes from the, from the, from the beginning of your show here. Um, a group, and I can't stress enough, this is a bipartisan group of us, uh, Representative Heisinga and Callie and um, Reno and Filler from the other side are part of a, our Republicans are part of an eight bill package um, that we've been working on for multiple sessions to have real financial disclosure to the people about uh, politicians' finances. And there's a reason for that. Um, I think unless you've been living under a rock, you know that right now in, in the United States, we have a crisis of confidence um, between the voters and the people. And, um, you know, I've been saying for, for as this has been developing, look, the relationships based on secrets don't work. It doesn't work in marriages, doesn't work in friendships, um, and it certainly doesn't work with the voters. So, Representative, are you telling me that this group that you put together are the destiny is to go around Mr. Shirky? 
Well, the, 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 the hope, I wouldn't say go around. I hope that uh, Mr. Shirky eventually gives us a fair hearing. The, the concern and the concerning development this week is that our bill package got, um, got edited and reintroduced so that rather than real financial disclosure, um, the proposal, there's a parallel proposal now to have fraudulent or hypocritical financial disclosure um, because it would be disclosure to a secret committee, which would be exempt from the Open Meetings Act. Um, and then citizens could uh, make ethical complaints about uh, a representative's financial conflicts. But how are they going to know? How would they possibly know what the conflicts are if they don't have access to the information? And so who so proposed it, that? Who proposed that? Um, it, it was introduced this week. Um, there's a narrative that this is some, you know, worked out deal among people, and I can't speak to that. The, the reality is it was introduced this week um, with some affirmative comments um, from uh, some members of the legislature. But, you know, I'm, my urgency here is to flag that if we don't disclose to the public, it's not disclosure. Emily. And by the I include, of course, the for, uh, of course, the press. If the press can't have access to this information, uh, they can't inform the people. And that's incredibly disturbing. Emily. What main stumbling blocks have you run into in previous iterations of uh, this legislation? And how do you plan to get around those this time? Okay, so uh, this is me, the hopeless optimist. When you say <laughs> what stumbling blocks have I have I encountered, I'll tell you, when I when we first introduced these bills four years ago, there were four of us standing in a podium uh, and no one was listening to us. Um, we, we had a podium out in front of the Capitol and no one showed up. Um, and we moved from that to individual conversations because people change is hard and no one wants to disclose private information, right? Um, we all have this in instinct for privacy. Um, and so I, I remember having a conversation with Bill Sowerby, who's one of the four bill uh, sponsors. And the first conversation I had, he said, I don't want to do that. Then he went home for the weekend, came back and said, we absolutely need to do this. It is our ethical responsibility. And Bill's been with it ever since. Um, uh, Senator Runstead in the Senate, who's a Republican, was not interested in this two years ago. Now he is fully on board and giving interviews on the subject. So the obstacles I am having are simple, simply time. I mean, all we have done is grow support for this. So our real financial disclosure, our not fraudulent financial disclosure package, has 63 co-sponsors. That's a majority of the House. So this would pass tomorrow if it came up for a vote and if it wasn't distorted into secret disclosure, which is, of course, a contradiction in terms. Jonathan. Um, Representative, uh, this proposal would create, the new proposal unveiled this week would create, as you, as you put it, a, a secret board. They, they, would, uh, they would take uh, private, confidential financial disclosures, um, and they wouldn't have to operate under the Open Meetings Act. It would be a bipartisan board, however, um, and uh, it seems to be addressing some concerns from Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, he has said he doesn't want the press, uh, the public, to be able to beat lawmakers up over their personal financial um, information. Um, is this, uh, you know, so is this um, basically, uh, you know, giving up that fight to, to appease Senator Shirky? Well, I think it is. And look, he, um, there's a couple answers to this, right? One is, I would like to try to change Senator Shirky's mind. Uh, and second of all, um, it's incredibly toxic. I mean, you can say that it's it's a bipartisan group, but if you imagine for a moment, I mean, you know, the old Lord Acton comment that 
power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We're talking about giving four people in the legislature potentially, you know, blackmailable information about everybody else in the legislature. Now, I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans. Imagine how much power that means. You could go to, you know, Representative Smith and say, hey, uh, it'd be a shame if we had to open an investigation on you. How about you support the thing I want to do? Um, so you have four people in the legislature then who essentially have superpowers, um, which is real and, and blackmail superpowers, right? This is this is the opposite. I mean, this is not a compromise. This is taking a good, important thing which might heal democracy and might re restore voter trust and might help the press, taking that, doing the opposite, and claiming that you've made progress. That's whitewashing. That is, that is actually taking a step backwards, no matter what spin you try to put on it. If it's not disclosure to the people, it is a lie. If it's not disclosure to the press, it is a lie. It doesn't help, it makes things worse. I'm afraid that look, in Lansing, in, in politics, two problems. One is it's a bubble. So if you trust everybody there, I trust all my colleagues, they're great people. I don't think financial disclosure is gonna find out that you know Representative X is taking kickbacks from Eagle. The point is we have lost trust with the voters. And if you've lost trust, you can be angry about it. You can think that the voters are wrong. You can think they're stupid. But at, at, the, at the end of the day, if my wife doesn't trust me, I have to do affirmative acts to rebuild that trust. I can't just be angry at her. We have lost voter trust. 40% of this country thinks that we're not even counting their ballots. If we can't re take affirmative steps to communicate with the voters and the press, I am worried that representative democracy is not going to continue to function. And I like America. I love the dream of a country where everyone is actually involved. And making something happen behind closed doors uh, just perpetuates bubble culture. It's toxic. Mr. Alden. So let me ask you this, Representative. If you have 63 people that are sponsoring this, as you accurately point out, it would pass uh, on Tuesday. Uh, What's holding it up? Is it uh, Republican leadership that is not going to let this come to the floor in in, in the form that you have it uh, with uh, that kind of support? You know, I can't speak to that. I guess my my point, uh, and I didn't finish thinking about the about the the, the uh, Senator Shirky problem. I would love to be able to sit down with Senator Shirky, and we were hoping to us, the group of us who are working on this, and say, look, this isn't that scary. It applies to legislators going forward, so it wouldn't even apply to you. Uh, it doesn't have any dollar figures associated. We're just trying to identify sources of conflict. The problem is in Lansing, we compromise a lot. And so sometimes you think anything that looks like someone else will agree to it must be a compromise. In this case, sure, Senator Shirky, Shirky might agree to uh, fraudulent disclosure, but that doesn't make it a compromise. That makes it a really smart move on his part if he doesn't actually want disclosure. But I remain hopeful that that's not his real goal, that he just hasn't really thought this through enough. Because I've got to believe he's got the same concerns about voter trust that I do. I mean, he's lived through on his side of the party, uh, in his side of the spectrum, voters massively, massively distrusting an election. I got to hope that uh, Senator Shirky understands that we have to work to restore trust, which is what our work has been about for four years. Well, it looks like not only do you have a Shirky problem, Mr. Shirky problem, but it looks like you have a Mr. Speaker problem. If you've got 63 votes, don't you have a Republican who can go to the Speaker and say, run this puppy? 
Well, we're working on it. I mean, again, call me a call me a, uh, a crazy dreamer, but we didn't have 63 co-sponsors the first time we introduced this. Um, and so every day I am talking to people and trying to urge them to, to move forward on this. So, of course, I'm advocating with the speaker that we move forward on it. Um, I'm trying to get our bills a hearing in a committee. Um, you know, there are technical parts of that, you know, making sure that they all go to the same committee. So I'm, we're not giving up on doing uh, real disclosure. But uh, and and I will tell you that, you know, a lot of my colleagues are understand this. Uh, and so it's unfortunate that the optics here are going to make all of us look bad when the majority of us understand the importance of not lying, of, of doing real disclosure to the people. So why don't uh, you majority, why don't you make a motion? On, why don't you make a motion on the floor to discharge a committee and move on this thing? Uh, maybe you need to become my legislative director. I don't know what to say. Um, you know, there are. Uh, I, I appreciate the council, and and uh, maybe you could tell. Maybe you could give that advice to, to to my LD afterwards. But I mean, I'm I'm doing everything I can. I'm open to suggestions. I mean, for me, part of the part of the issue here is people have to understand this, and so I'm really glad that we can talk about it because uh, it's subtle, right? And and also, I mean, no disrespect to your talking about the governor's travel, but. That's a tabloid story. I mean, at the end of the day, whether she traveled or not, she's not going to have been a super spreader. Um, you know, that, that it sounds juicy and exciting to get into the governor's like personal travel habits. But what, what I'm talking about is something that's foundational to having a healthy democracy in the state of Michigan. I mean, this is really important stuff. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. All right, and we're going to we're going to continue the conversation in overtime. But Jonathan, if you've got a quick question, we can take it up to closing credits. Go ahead, please. Uh, sure, Representative, re pull back one sec. Why is personal financial disclosure actually important for lawmakers, for somebody like yourself? Well, because the majority of voters and studies show this, majority of voters think that I go to Lansing to self-enrich. Now, if you ask them how, it's, they get, uh, it gets a little unclear, right? So how can I prove to the voters that I'm not really self-dealing, that I'm not cutting secret deals? Now, how would I, I self-enrich in Lansing? If I were doing it, I would, I would propose legislation which made me richer because of the things that I own. So financial disclosure is a way of identifying my potential conflicts. So for example, if I own some commercial real estate, which I do, and if I went around Lansing pushing to lower property taxes on commercial real estate, that would be a conflict of interest and I would be self-dealing. But my voters wouldn't necessarily know that because I've never put on my literature that I own commercial property. That's boring. Nobody's gonna vote for me because of that. But people have to have that information when they when they watch my behavior. Representative, we're going to ask the people to vote on coming back for an overtime session with you right after we look at these closed credits. So go to WKAR.org for more of our conversation with Representative Legrand. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. For more off the record, visit wkar.org. Michigan Public Television stations have contributed to the production costs of Off the Record with Tim Skubik.